Welcome to the Mission Daily. I'm your host, Chad Grills. I'm joined by Ian Faison, and this is part two of the seven dangerous signs that you're on to something big. Let's get into it. So this is number four. You'll notice people are trying to turn you into a scapegoat. So in the first three dangerous signs, I almost said signs, dangerous (laughs) signs that you're onto something big. Um, I think it was a little bit of. And dangerous in a sense of like, you know, just watch out to protect yourself. Not as like, it's not a threat. It's not that people, everyone around you is crazy, but it's just a reminder that uh, people don't take kindly to thinkers yeah. or readers. Exactly. If you're a Bill Hicks fan. But, and yeah. and I think that some of the some of the things in the first three that we were talking about, which you can go back to listen to yesterday's episode um, if you hadn't already, uh, are not as uh, not as malicious, perhaps seeming yeah. as this one. But this one is a is a little malicious. These, so uh, all four of these get into the uh, yeah the the real stuff um, pretty fast. But so and. And when we say people are trying to turn you into a scapegoat, um, so Albert Einstein said that great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Um, I that's it's like a great way of looking at this that just and we've talked about this before, but like you know people who like he sums up this problem, but there is a lot of uh, information and history behind this problem that I think everyone needs to be. Uh, aware of and like, the more it, you're aware of this the more you can uh, notice when it's happening and you can stop it in the early stages because the phenomena of scapegoating is it's real it's, it's existed with human societies forever and it's basically where a group of people bands up together against uh, one specific individual and when that individual is um, sacrificed or kicked out of the tribe or uh, you know, is forced into isolation from from everyone, has to go into exile. That is an example of scapegoating, and that's something that uh, exists. Where whether it's like the Salem witch trials, that's a famous example that everyone uh, recognizes. Or if you look back at any of the pictures uh, from different societies, whether it's the Romans or the conquistadors or anyone, you'll see pictures of uh, sacrifice, and that is scapegoating at its worst. Um, but small time scapegoating occurs. All the time when somebody has a new idea. Yeah. And, and it's, it's something that can be in like the public eye. It could be something that's in your family. It could be like anywhere around you. But the idea and like a, a good example of this is nobody wants to suggest somewhere to go eat. Like everybody's like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And you're finally like, all right, let's go get Indian food. Like there's a great spot. That's down, a great example. Great spot down the street. So the person that suggests something that's a bit too out there or kind of forces everyone to think or have to uh, really you know make a hard choice or make an uncertain choice that is uh, whether it's like a local place that isn't a chain restaurant that everyone recognizes or something like that it's going to require more cognitive processing power and the individual that selected it you know might get a little uh making fun of or you know something like that. and then so like let's say it's a great idea it's a new indian spot they've been the, they're the only one who's been there before it's delicious great reviews all that sort of stuff and then so they get food poisoning. Yes, exactly. And it's like, well, if Chad didn't recommend that we went to this place, I never would have had ne- that. We never next, would. Have, and so yeah. we're never listening to you again. Yes. And that can, if you let it, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy or a mantra or other people will try to brand you with that. They will try to brand you with a stigma of 
this person is always going to lead us astray. And I think that evolutionarily we've been through so much with bad leaders that this is small time scapegoating is very similar to skepticism. Being skeptical is a great thing some of the time, but at a certain point it can really snowball into scapegoating. And then before long, you know, before you know it, you're in a group of people that is picking on one person for this like real or imagined, um, yeah, negative thing that they've done. But so, and, and Einstein goes on to say, and you got to figure like someone like Einstein, obviously when he's thinking and saying this sort of stuff is like, clearly he's carrying some emotional baggage with him on this. Sure. But when he talks about the mediocre mind, it's like, we don't like to think like, I think it's, I think if you're around a group of your peers and you're, and you were to say to them, well, your mediocre minds are incapable of understanding, you know, my opinion that I'm providing courageously and honesty. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's definitely like, it's not about that. It's not about like, you know, who is, uh, smarter or farther up a hierarchy of intelligence or anything like that. I mean, this is from someone who Einstein famously was you know, banging on the table that imagination is the largest part of what we call intelligence. And then, you know, Crichton and other great authors picked it up and ran with it. But what he's really saying is that when he says mediocre minds here, it's easy to glance at it and be like, oh, that's mean. That's that's negative. Well, if you extrapolate where small time scapegoating goes <laughs> in the world when we don't have comfort. Maybe when people haven't uh, had a meal in the last, say, six hours, eight hours. Well, you can imagine what would happen if you get to like a Lord of the Flies type situation. Like you can extrapolate that out. And we all have a healthy imagination to think about, okay, how would these individuals operate or how would this group that is kind of picking at us operate in the absence of, um, yeah, comfort and technology. And, and, and I think that Lord of the Flies is a great example of that. It's the extreme scapegoating example. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a great thought experiment for sure. Okay. Let's go on to number five. Oh, right. and, and one one more. Yeah, I, was, I, 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 I knew you had something. <laughs> I could feel it before I said on to number five. What's up? So there's this cartoon by a cartoonist named Hugh McLeod. Uh, might be butchering the name. I Sorry. Think, I think Sorry, it's Hugh, Hugh McClude. I'm, we got to look this up. Yeah. We, we need we to get up on enough, our Irish. Um, it's got to be it's Irish, be, right? That's got to be Scottish. Scottish. Oh, oops. Um, so he has this cartoon where there's just one person uh, that he's dr- drawn into the frame. And the only text on the cartoon says that great ideas alter the power balance in relationships. That's why great ideas are initially resisted. And then on the card, there's this little guy that says, yes, but. So yes, but is what people typically respond with when they hear a great idea. It's yeah. it's a very, it's a challenging thing to hear because it might be a solution. Um, and people don't always want solutions. And I'd say the... Uh... I think the other uh the other one is well actually that's like the oh, yeah, yeah. that's the ultimate and you see that all the time on social media or whatever when people are it's like well actually it's it's this way and they're trying to they're trying to uh to get their kind of word in edgewise but it really is the same exact thing that they're saying is like yeah I mean you're saying that but actually uh the reason you got you got food poisoning is because of blank and he's yeah. like no definitely um, and then the second part of that, I didn't read the whole thing, but good ideas come with a heavy burden. That's why so so few people have them. So few people can handle it. Um, and handling new ideas or big ideas and then presenting them is something that is, uh, it doesn't necessarily get easier over time because as your imagination and as your ability to generate useful and valuable ideas improves, 
Um, it's actually a phenomena that gets more pronounced, more worse, <laughs> more worse. Is that the right way of saying it? I don't know. Close enough. But the point being is that you're going to get actually more violent opposition the further you go on this journey. And that's why it can be very exhausting. And it's also why you need to be aware of when a crowd or a group starts to form uh, together with the, you know, with the expressed or unexpressed goal of scapegoating you. So watch yourself. So on to number five, people will start to become concerned and sabotage what you're doing. Yes. This is a great segue into, so The War of Art is a famous book, well-known book, I would say, in creative communities. It's written by Stephen Pressfield, and it's basically all about what Pressfield coins as resistance. And resistance is basically self-sabotage. And it's the idea that whenever you start pursuing something, you're going to be sabotaged by yourself, others, um, situations in your head. Um, You're going to fall back into old bad habits, uh, or you're going to have people who physically tell you like what you're doing is stupid. You shouldn't do it. And actually the war of art is going to be our, yeah, it's our pick for the book club book club. Yeah. next, Next up. Uh, when do I have to pee? When is it? It's oh. uh, the 11th. Yeah. Oh yeah, June 11th. So if you haven't yeah. read or listened. Yeah, the Mission Book Club, uh, free to join. It's a Facebook group. The last book we read was Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb. And so we read a new book every two weeks and then we have a discussion about it uh, in like a live hangout where we interact, have some shenanigans. It was a blasty a, blast. Maybe a few <laughs> drinks and yeah, talk about books and uh, yeah. It was a good stuff, but we're doing the War of Art. Um, by Stephen Pressfield, so you should you should definitely uh, definitely read, for read anybody or... that's aspiring to create something, it's uh it's just a must read. And uh, the thing that's so valuable about it is Pressfield personifies everything that is stopping us that we intuitively know about, and many of these things we've encountered them before. But he basically sums them all up into this enemy of resistance. So, like we talked about earlier with N- Napoleon Hill and outwitting the devil, Pressfield basically lumps all of the the terms and things like that together into this idea of resistance. And that's what we are fighting as creatives. So why do you think people get irritated with other people pursuing big ideas? I think it's just, it's so, it's so intimidating because there's the prospect that it might work in which case that solidifies the fact that that individual might be more ambitious, might be more imaginative, might be more of a harder worker. Um, and that kind of threatens the relationship. It threatens the power balance, as Hugh was talking about earlier. Uh, and then if uh, you're not successful, if you are you know, a target of scapegoating or you fail or you quit or anything like that, you're going to be like a pariah, essentially. So either way, it's not going to work out that well. <laughs> or if it does, you know, in rare cases with individuals where you are successful, uh, you you will notice that the relationship actually deepens or there's an opportunity for it to to really deepen or the person who initially like questioned what you're doing realizes like oh wow you you actually did it you did what you said you were going to do and you really really have to be careful and zero in on the people who are cheering you on and basically they're so rare um, yeah. and there's it's so rare to find people who not only say they want you to succeed um, but then they actually, through their actions, support you in succeeding. What's the uh, what's the Stefan or Stefan Molyneux quote or or whatever guy? I just butchered his name. Um, oh, on uh, boring. Um, the everybody wants you to be boring, every, so they don't have to be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that a good way of uh, summing it up? That's Why? Great. 
<laughs> because it does take the pressure off and it's not, no, this isn't a call to be on the edge of your seat with an interesting factoid or something like that all the time. It's not a call to always be turned on, but it is a call to just be aware of the fact that um, people are going to start expressing concern. And sometimes that can go as far as like just outright sabotage. What is So what does sabotage look like? What, like, what does that actually... Oh, I'm trying to tell y'all it's sabotage. Or <laughs> oh my God. Little BC boys. Um, <laughs> so here's a little bit more. I really walked into that. <laughs> from, from Pressfield. I kind of botched it, but it's at least it's funny to me. Um, so this is like, I could, when I started reading this section of the War of Art, I couldn't believe that Pressfield actually put it in there because at first glance, when I read it, I was like, man, this feels like really paranoid. And just like we talked about earlier, I found myself in the trap of basically judging very like prematurely judging the author and thinking like this is just straight up paranoia man yeah and then i read it the second time just you know paused a little bit it's like maybe this isn't because i have definitely you know experienced this like many times whether you're sharing writing or really anything and so here's the rest of uh pressfield talking about what's going on with this self-sabotage so he says resistance by definition is self-sabotage but there's a parallel peril that also must be guarded against sabotage by others. When a writer or creative or anybody that's trying to do something new begins to overcome her resistance. In other words, when she actually starts to write, she may find that those close to her begin acting strange. They might become moody or sullen. They may get sick. They may accuse the awakening writer of quote changing or quote, not being the person she was. The closer these people are to the awakening writer, the more bizarrely they will act and the more emotion they will put behind their actions. So this in practice is, I never see you anymore <laughs> or like stuff. You're like, not fun anymore. Why aren't you oh being man, fun? Oh man, that's another, that's a good one. Um, I don't know what voices we just gave, but I guess those are annoying person X. Uh, but, but that, that's, that's what that person is. It's those, the like passive aggressive questions that people give to you. Um, like, oh, you you have to do blank. Oh, you've got to go do blank. Um, and it kind of, they want to put you on a trajectory. And again, like this is not yeah. like necessarily malicious. And no, I think it's that not. a lot of these things, there is some stuff that is more malicious in these, in these steps. But a lot of this is not, it's just like people either, you know, want you to be a certain way or want you to be the way that would be most comfortable for them or, you know, whatever it is. It makes people very uncomfortable and it's uh, it's not always a bad thing. It's again, just a sign that you're onto something big. It's a sign that you might have some pretty serious ambition. You might really care about things and that's important. So Pressfield goes on to say that the awakening artist, and again, he uses artist in a very broad sense here. So the awakening person must be ruthless, not only with herself, but with others. Once you make your break, i.e. once you start doing the work or you start getting into a routine or start having some success that other people recognize, you can't turn around for your buddy who catches his or her trouser on the barbed wire. The best thing you can do for that friend, and he'd tell you this himself if he really is your friend, is to get over the wall and keep moving. The best and the only thing that one artist can do for another is to serve as an example or an inspiration. And so that's from The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield uh, it's one of our picks for the Mission Book Club. You can join that for free. We got a Facebook group. The discussion is coming up on June 11th. So if you want to tune in, feel free to join the group or request to join it. I think you have to get approved. And uh, we'll talk about the book. And that book, Ian, do you know where it's available? 
Uh, Aside from everywhere books are sold. Do I know where it's, you know, is it available on Audible? That is an amazing guess. And that brings us to our sponsor. they're They're always top of mind. They are top of mind. And with the Mission Daily, we are very, very proud of having Audible as our exclusive sponsor. So we use Audible to try to get smarter, do whatever we can to realize how little we know, however you want to you know, define it. The that's, war that's of art. Accurate. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, right? So The War of Art is a powerful book. It's something that you can listen to again and again, or maybe even listen to like once a year. There's certain books that I listen to multiple times. Uh, the War of Art is one of them. And you can get it on www.audible.com slash the mission. I love it. And you can text the mission to 500-500 and you can get the book that way. Chad is a big fan of the World Wide Web, so that's why he includes that, <laughs> uh, just to not be confused with other webs. Shout out to Tim Berners-Lee and everyone else, all the fine <laughs> folks at ARPA. Thanks for hooking <laughs> us up. Oh, that's good. Um, but yeah, thank you to Audible and uh, and go 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 listen to some books. Yes, and you can't go wrong with Stephen Pressfield. All right, next dangerous sign. Number six, procrastination will become impossible and work will be a delight. That is definitely, when you feel driven... When you feel like you're every morning thinking, you're waking up and you're like, wow, it, yeah. I really, I just can't, can't wait to do that. Um, I, I'm excited to check my email in the morning. I might be one of the only people. I, uh, I oscillate between terror around that and then d- delight for a couple of yeah, weeks. And uh, the delight couldn't be as sweet if I didn't feel outright terror that's for a, a couple great of weeks. Point. <laughs> and so we've actually talked about procrastination a little bit. Yeah. And um, we feel this is where I think Ian has an important truth. He believes that few others would agree with him on. So any any chance I can get you to share a little bit uh, about that? So do you do you mean uh just about, about procrastination, entrepreneurs, things yeah, like that? Yeah. So I mean I think Oh and, and real quick too. So this question is uh obviously a riff on Peter Thiel's famous question that he asks in zero to one and generally he asks it of new hires or new portfolio investments. And it's uh designed to test an individual's imagination and courage. And I so I, and I think about the the actual question all the time, and it's really something we should do an entire episode on it. But it's the idea of like what you know, what truth do you um, do you believe that few people agree with you on? And so I always, whenever I hear people disparage the wannapreneur, uh, which is like if you don't know what that means, it's you know people who I think that the connotation is that people who either pretend to be entrepreneurs or just say that they're an entrepreneur for the sake of like feeling cool. And, and my entrepreneur, it appears to be a definition that uh, semi-successful or pretty successful internet entrepreneurs use to describe anyone else who is getting started in business in a way that's different than how they got started. Yeah, agreed. And so <laughs> my my contention is, and I totally understand what, what people are saying with that, um, but like number one, if the if being cool is being an entrepreneur, it's like that we're doing great as a society. Yeah, because that sh- it should be cool to try to build things yourself. Yeah, um, it should be really cool. So number one, and if you're pretending to fit in and you're pretending to build companies and you're not you're not like truly being yourself, it's like that's perfectly fine because like you got to try to fit in somehow. And I think that people get so caught up with like the idea of like what are you building and how great is your company and like how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. We actually talked about this um, with Mike Solana, but like, it's really, really hard. Yeah. It's like the only way to actually know that is to try it. And if you got to walk around and talk about the stuff that you're doing and you know, how hard it was to build your for you a know, couple months for years, like it's not, whatever. it's not a big deal because it's it fine. takes 
I, that's the other like taboo topic, like of just how long it takes in the early days. Like every single really successful company, like, yeah, there's the cliche example that every uh, overnight success was like seven, 10 years in the making. Um, it's true. And in some cases, every overnight success was 20, 30, 40 years in the making. <laughs> it's the culmination of an entire individual's life. And so if somebody's going around for six months looking for the right name, they might just be looking for a really good name. They might not be that entrepreneur that demands you despise them until they start an internet product company that is yeah. like, or an information product company that blah blah blah. Like, but and and I think that the idea of like procrastination and entrepreneurship and all this sort of stuff of like just get started and all that is true. So those people who kind of like brag about the fact that like say hey, since I was twelve years old I, that was when I you know had an apple stand outside my parents' house where I would like put milk chocolate and put it on there and sell. Like I've been an entrepreneur since I was 12 years old. And I used to kind of think like that's super hokey and kind of dumb. But then you think about it and you're like, there was nothing on that street corner. And then they put their little apple stand on there and like they liked being an entrepreneur. And if you want to call yourself an entrepreneur since you were 12, go ahead. Sure. That's totally cool. And like really the definition is, as we've talked about, like creating uh, or moving you know, yield from like high yield to low yield, vice versa. Um, But the idea, like, that's fine. It's totally okay. And if you want to like brag about how you're working on all this cool stuff, like at least you're trying to work on cool stuff. Completely. And it's like when you band together though with others to go back and tell other up and coming entrepreneurs what they're doing wrong, it's very, very presumptuous. So I fall into the trap too, where I think that giving advice is possible Sometimes it is, but having enough context is almost impossible because again, paraphrasing a great quote here, like every great moment in business happens only once. And indeed, every moment in business only happens once. So if you're, you know, a sign that you're onto something big is a critique of you're being a entrepreneur. And then it's up to you to determine, are you being a entrepreneur or are you taking the necessary steps? Are you just exploring things? Are you being paranoid or are you being aware? It always oscillates between that and it's up for you to decide. No, totally. And when you, now if you're to just like go grab something like white labeled and like relabel it and like set up all the stuff and sell it, it's like that is on you. That's your prerogative. As long as you're being ethical and not like, you know, um, doing things that are wrong, that's fine. If you want to like find the perfect logo for your company or whatever product or whatever it is and go get the PR, like go get the press release done and get a photo shoot and like make a beautiful website and all this stuff to be the CEO of your own company so you can tell people you're CEO. And pass out business cards at a local event. Who's to say that that is not the best way for that individual to learn everything they need to know and find a local opportunity and something brand new. It's exactly right. And at least they're doing something. Exactly. And as being a CEO and you can talk to like quote unquote other CEOs, even though you're like the CEO of you, right? Again, that's totally cool too. If you're adding value and you're not like just like stealing people's time and being like helpful, I think it comes down to like, are the people actually trying to be helpful human yes. beings? Or are they are you trying to give, you trying to take, or what's th- that's more important? Yes. And like, are you trying to yeah. scapegoat? Or are you trying to lift up? And we should yeah. definitely not uh, be speaking. I, I don't think we should be like, turning our nose at like, what is the kind of entrepreneur? Because you oh, know who 100%. definitely wasn't a kind of entrepreneur? The guy who's like, well, I want to build something that uh, that tries to beat the postal service. And everyone thought he was an idiot. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, however many years later, six years later, whatever, Fred Smith is like the most, one of the most famous uh, like 
cradle to, I shouldn't say grave, but uh, you know, one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time who is still running his company FedEx because like people are betting against him and that's, and that's all of these people. So if you're going to get bet against either way, like we probably shouldn't turn our nose on that. And some of that stuff is, is procrastination based. Yes. And so when you're, when you find yourself in a situation where you're not thinking about procrastination or time management, you just find yourself doing more that is a powerful, powerful sign that you're pursuing something that is important to you, to, to your individual tastes. So that's a, uh, a personalized guidepost to look for, um, to know that you're onto something big. And people all the time talk about like here in Silicon Valley, um, in the Bay area where we live, there's people all the time. They're like, man, I, I just wish I had more time in the day. And like, you know, or starting like trying to run multiple companies or different sort of things. I have a friend who's like trying to has three companies and like, you know what you do by that? You find your breaking point. Like yes, you find yeah. the point in your life where I actually am out of bandwidth. Like yes, I, I, yeah. I did it. Like I broke myself. And when you do do that, like, and you will get overworked and you will probably like, you know, sacrifice some like family and friends and stuff like that. And then what happens is you realize that you broke yourself and you have to go back to those people and repair the relationships. And, like you grow as a person. You're like, hey, I, I crossed the line was not a good thing. And then you can kind of learn and grow as a human being. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. It's uh, like the talk we just listened to, I guess, two nights ago with the bank of trust example. Like you're going to have a bank where you build up uh, trust and love and time with other people. And you're going to have to like draw, you're gonna have to make, uh, yeah, take, take money out or take the proverbial trust out from family and friends when you spend time away from them. That's the necessary sacrifice. But if you're a creative, if you're thinking about big ideas, chances are you'll be able to you know, figure out the thing you can do to make the deposit in the future to equal it out. Shout out to Mark Leslie and uh, and all the good people at Andrews Norris for having a great event. Yes. Yeah. Amazing event. So number seven, one, number seven, bring it home. You won't be able to find examples of when it's been done before. This really is the most important one. I love this. Yeah. Um, I really, really, this is so inspiring and cool because again, it gets back to the idea and the call to action that Every single person listening to this is their own singularity. So when people in Silicon Valley and when crazy futurists start talking about the singularity, how it's coming and how AI and robotics are going to replace us or anything like that, um, they're just, they're really far off the rocker. I can tell you that that's the first thing. But the second thing that should be really exciting is that you are the singularity that matters. And if you choose to treat your life and your ideas like that, you're not going to be able to find examples, explicit examples of when the thing that you want to try, the idea you have, or the project that you're pursuing has been done before. You might find some examples and some parallels, uh, but there are going to be a couple things about your idea and your approach that are that don't fit into any predefined mold or narrative. So I want to, there's a good quote from Ludwig Witten, Wittgenstein. <laughs> God, it's a tough one. Who is this dude? Uh, philosopher, uh, writer, yeah. So I'll read the quote, but there's a there's a really interesting thing after this that I, I want to discuss. So there are indeed things that cannot be put into words. They make themselves manifest. Yeah. And this is really cool for, for a few reasons. Borderline mystical, but there's a lot of truth in it. No, it, it is. So Chad and I have talked about this, um, actually, I guess off air, uh, about the idea of like the elevator pitch, right? Yeah. And I totally understand the Warren Buffett's like, you need to be able to explain something simply to invest in it, that sort of like idea. But there's other things that like are really hard to put into words. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously like things like love and all of that, like very hard to be put, put the into words. The best things can't be defined. 
Yeah. And the so best, the highest human emotions and the things that we cherish the most are actually the hardest to define. So yeah. and love, so, courage, yeah. Yeah. Caring. And, and and I think that when you're talking, when you're working on something big, especially early on, you're gonna have no idea how to explain this. Yes. And and, and that's a good that's a good sign. That's where all things pass through the stage of chaos and they move into order. Um yeah. And and I think what is what is really crazy about that thing is most people just say, I'm trying to change blank. And they talk about like an industry. But I feel like many, I'll say many like business folks say those type of things. But I feel like most times the people who are the smartest uh, or who are actually solving the problem do not talk about things in terms of industries or uh, like sweeping generalities. They talk about the specific solve problem that they're solving. Yep. And, uh, you know, Clayton Christensen says it's the job. Uh, you have to optimize for the job. Like what is the job yep. that the thing does? But that's the way. And anybody outside that industry without the industry parlance and like the boots on the ground type perspective is going to be probably baffled. It's going to sound like a, almost a foreign language. <laughs> if you've really d- defined a specific opportunity that's big enough for a startup or a book or a new artistic endeavor or something like that, it's going to sound like complete gibberish in the early stages. It's not going to be intelligible to those who don't have all the context that you have. And so here's some like, and we'll just kind of rattle off some examples here and kind of go through this, but like, here's an example. When someone says they're fixing healthcare, (laughs) there's a reason why this has not been done correctly. And it's probably because of like the exact sort of thing that we're talking about. It's yes. never really been done before. There's no examples of this. And therefore, the people who are working on it have not been successful at doing it. And they couldn't explain what they're actually solving for. They can, they're just saying something. Yes. I, there's a big temptation to just say something. And there's a much like bigger challenge though. And that challenge is to remain confident enough in your ideas and into especially staying confident while you explore them because there's not going to be especially like early proof of concept or early signs that you're approaching product market fit. Basically what I'm saying is like anytime you see signs that your idea might be a great idea or it might be something that people want or it's a solution that will be used or maybe one day you think that everyone around the world is going to be using this solution or this new thing that you create. In any of those cases, like when you get proof of concept and new data that suggests that what you're onto is big, there's not going to be anybody that cheers you on. You're just going to be by yourself. If you're lucky, maybe you'll be around a group of people and then you can start to build that case study, um, like a trusted group of like great friends, co-founders, folks like that. Um, but in those rare cases where you do get data, it's on you to collect it, analyze it, and you basically have to become a scientist and you have to you know, determine, am I being paranoid? Am I being aware? Am I being objective or subjective? And am I onto something or is this one, yeah, nothing big. Joseph Campbell said that if you can see your path laid out before you, it's not your path. Yes, it's not like, so, yeah, some of these quotes are great reminders and they're, it's, not, it's not comforting <laughs> because if you can't see the path, it's pretty unnerving. Yeah. And uh, we talked about it in uh, the story after show about the idea of collecting dots versus connecting the dots. Yes. And early on, when you're in this 
when you have this big idea or you're onto something big, you're in collecting dot mode where you have no idea how these things are going to connect at some point down the road. And I think a lot of people try to do that early on. It's like, oh, I'm going to connect the dots and then, you know, that's my path. When in reality, it's like you're just kind of collecting these different data points or like you were talking about with the data set. And then once you have, you know, that moment to look back and look at all this is like, oh, now you can now you can kind of forge your own. Yes. Path. Yeah. You need massive data sets or pretty large data sets until your pattern recognition skills really can kick in uh, and you can identify the best patterns. Shout um, out to Ellen for the. Yes. Connecting definitely. the dots. Um, so I think to leave everyone, this has been really f- a fun two part episode. Let us know what you think. And if there are any topics that you want to see us explore in future multi-part episodes like this, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, give us a rating and review. We appreciate everyone. And we'll probably start reading more of them on future episodes. Oh, we how have we not done that? Well, it's because we do it well, on I have the this, story. That's why. Yeah, I have a special idea around that too. We'll, uh, we'll do that later. And but, then I just want to leave everybody with um, one more just thought. So... If you could see the path in front of you, and if you knew exactly what was going to happen, there couldn't be any surprise or excitement. And it's just one more thing. Creating anything new, coming up with big ideas, it's not fun. There's going to be people that are against you. But if you're looking for those signs and the guideposts of when you're onto something big that could help a lot of people, you're going you're gonna to be primed to spot opportunities. Uh, and that's really exciting. And just remember that if you knew what was going to happen, couldn't be exciting. Love it. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any big ideas, hit us up at, at the Mission HQ. On Twitter or on the socials? On the we'll Twitters. Yeah, actually, really, all the socials. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. We're everywhere now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.